Thank you. I told him, don't, be, don't cut into my time. He, he said he was going to, so I was like, because I know he's going to end up coming stealth-like up this to tell me to quit, but anyway, um, let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, we just are so grateful for this place. Um, I just ask you to come in here, and um, I hope that the people that are in this room here just take one little snippet of something from this, and um, just please speak through me. Give me your voice tonight, Lord, to, uh, to say exactly what the people in this room need to hear. In your son's precious name, amen. So I am a grateful believer who struggles with alcohol. My name is Debbie. Hi, Debbie. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Tonight I'm thrilled to stand before you and share my story that shows his faithfulness in every single one of his promises. I was born in the summer of 1967 in Patterson, California. My mom was 16 in between her junior and senior year of high school. My dad, or the man that I believed was my dad, was in Vietnam. My mom and I lived with my grandmother on a dairy in Gustine until I was three and a half. At that time, my dad came back from Vietnam, married my mom, and adopted me. We moved to Modesto where my mom worked and my dad attended MJC, taking prerequisites for dental school. They sent me to a babysitter around the corner for a few hours, and I had a lot of friends in the neighborhood. This would become a positive pattern in my life. Lots of friends. As a family, we would sit down every night together for dinner and discuss the events of our day. After dinner, we would play games or watch a family show together. Those years carry memories of being great. Sometime between kindergarten and first grade, my dad was accepted to the University of the Pacific. This took us to Stockton. My mom and I commuted to Modesto every day for work and school. Dinners together as a family began to decrease to only a few nights a week. The following year, a major event occurred in my life. My parents moved to San Francisco as UOP's dental school is there. They didn't want me living in San Francisco, so they sent me to live with my paternal grandmother in Patterson, where I went to second and third grade. My positive world was upended as I only saw my parents on weekends. They would either come to Patterson to see us, or my grandmother would drive me to Livermore to meet them. On those weekends, I would spend the weekend in San Francisco, and then they would drive, back, drive me back to Livermore again on Sunday evenings to meet my grandmother. I remember so well the pain of these departures. I would chase after their car crying as they drove away and my grandmother would try and comfort my breaking heart as we drove back to Patterson. After two years of crying every single Sunday night, my parents decided to move me to the Bay Area to be with them for my dad's last year of dental school. They moved to San Rafael so I could attend fourth grade there instead of in the city. We lived in a nice apartment complex where my school bus picked me up and dropped me off. The new school, in what to me was the big city, was a huge culture shock. For the first time in my life, I encountered bullies. Through my recovery, I, I have now recognized that this is where I began a pattern of running from fear and pain through isolation as a defense mechanism. 
To avoid the mean children, I would go straight into my apartment where often no one was home. And in my attempts to avoid the bullies, my number of friends began to decrease. My dad graduated and we moved back to the valley for good. My parents bought a house in Patterson. They sent me to a private Catholic school in Modesto, St. Stanislaus, where I would finish elementary and junior high. And then I went next door to Central Catholic for all four years of high school. My family being Catholic brought me up with the truth that there is a God, but there was no real mention of who this God was. So I grew up with this as my spirituality. I knew there was a God and I believed in God, but he was in no way personal. I attended Catholic school very irregularly with my mom and regularly on the first Fridays of every month while in Catholic school, as this was their program. My mom had me baptized at birth. I then went to catechism as a child and I received my first communion. I was also confirmed in the Catholic Church. At the end of junior high, a series of events began that were defining moments in my life. I learned that I was the family secret. My cousin told me that my dad, the man that I believed was my dad, was not my biological father. I was crushed. I did not believe her. So many painful questions flooded my soul. What? How could this be? Why? It couldn't be true. And if he wasn't, then who was? I went to my mom and asked her in disbelief. Her response was, we'll talk about it when we get home. But I knew tr the truth by, the, by her face and body language. Obviously, I could not just let her non-response go. So over the coming days, I tried to talk to my parents about it. But every time I brought it up, I was pushed away by their non-response. As good codependents, they continued to keep the family secrets avoided and swept under the rug. Eventually, they thought they put it to rest when my dad finally told me that my mom was, was date raped. He had adopted me and that was the end of the discussion. It would be many years later before I found out any more of the truth. This once again made me isolate from the pain because I now knew the horrible truth and my parents' response clearly sent the message that it was even more horrible because we couldn't even talk about it. And I had no tools as how to deal with this information as a 12-year-old girl approaching puberty. My dad had begun drinking a lot at home and it quickly became evident to all of us that we had a new family secret. My dad was and is an alcoholic. As his drinking began, along with the alcohol, came the horrible side effects. When my dad drank, this man who ran from conflict when sober became verbally, emotionally, and mentally and physically abusive, calling me names, telling me that I was stupid, that I would never amount to anything, throwing his empty glasses at me, shattering them against the wall. Often I would flee to get away, but this would not work because he would chase me, catch me, and drag me back inside by my hair. In keeping our family pattern, he never even acknowledged these behaviors, pretending the next day as if nothing had happened, only, begin, only to begin them all over again as he began drinking again the next night. One day I found some pot in a drawer in my parents' bedroom. I asked them about it and my dad claimed that a lot of professionals do it. He claimed that it was a stress reliever. He said that it was no big deal. He even said that if I wanted to smoke pot to please do so at home. I am so sure. I wasn't about to get stoned with my parents. 
It certainly was a permission that no parent should have given their adolescent daughter who was living in the fear of an abusive alcoholic home. Another defining moment, my mom told me she was pregnant. I was furious. I had been an only child for 13 years. How dare they do this to me? In hindsight, the pregnancy was actually really good for them and me because they would quit smoking pot because of the pregnancy. I was 13 when my brother was born. It was when I was 14 that I went to my first high school party. I drank three and a half beers and I was throwing up in the bushes. Drinking was certainly not for me until the following weekend when it was, when it was available again. I would only drink on the weekends through high school and college. I also experimented a little bit with pot and crank in college. Here in the freedom of young adulthood, I also began having sex with men and having sex, and men became a provider of good feelings amidst the pain and confusion, but I always came back to the alcohol as my drug of choice. Alcohol gave me peace and courage, liquid peace and courage. This kept the pain and confusion of my family and an early adulthood at bay. In 1993, I finished college with a Bachelor of Science degree in dental hygiene. I got two jobs working in two different dental offices. Life was good, and I began a pattern of going out for drinks after work with my coworkers. In 1995, a very special patient walked into my office. He was to become my loving husband, Ray. Ray is a musician, and he was playing at the time at a club called Kickers. He invited me to come see him play. I went, and the rest is history. We have been together ever since. But as you will hear, it has not been a smooth ride. I found myself dating a musician and hanging out in clubs often, almost all night staying after they closed. This was a new and exciting phase of my life. To be honest, I felt like I had lived a pretty boring existence up to this point. I decided it was time to let my hair down and live with Ray, and live. And with Ray, I set out to paint the town red. Life became one adventure after another. For six years, we drank together a lot and experimented with drugs a little. In the spring of 2002, I found out that I was pregnant with our son and we decided it was time to settle down and get married. In September of 2002, we bought a house and then a month later, we got married. I became a blended family mommy to my 11-year-old stepdaughter and our son Cole was born a month later. Together, we decided that I would stay home with Cole and Ray would work. Ray worked at a car dealership. The money was good, but the hours were very long. I got lonely. I had gone from a life of clubs and excitement and being out in the public, being around a lot of people on a daily basis with my rock star husband and my coworkers to being home alone with a little baby, completely dependent on me for all his needs. And like so many mommies, I loved my son with all my heart, but on the other side, my life had completely changed. After a year of nursing Cole, I made a decision that would greatly affect the next two and a half years of not only my life, but the life of my family and those closest to me. I decided to make up for the changes by drinking. It quickly began to take control. It began with just drinking a few drinks in the evening, waiting for Ray to get home. I easily rationalized that I deserved them. Being a stay-at-home mom is really hard work. 
Only an honest addict, though, can look back and see how quickly those few drinks in the evening turned into a fifth or more of straight vodka every day. Before I knew it, I was needing that vodka in the morning just to get rid of my DTs. Then I depended on that vodka throughout the day just to get me through the day. What had begun years before as liquid peace and courage had become my biggest nightmare as it controlled my existence. The denial was thick as I lied to myself that I was taking good care of my son, even as I was consistently passed out by 3 p.m. with him either curled up next to me or being watched by his sister while I slept. Most days I would keep up the denial that things were fine. Really, they were, by waking up around 4.30 in time to make dinner for my husband, who may or may not make it home. My life was insane and unmanageable, and only now, because of Christ in my recovery, can I recognize how totally selfish and dishonest I had become. But at this point, caught up in my addiction and denial, I was nowhere near ready to admit it. Instead, I became verbally, emotionally, mentally, and physically abusive to both my husband and stepdaughter. I sought comfort, affirmation, and validated from a, another man. I began, I even drove drunk with my son and stepdaughter every day, putting their lives and the lives of other drivers in jeopardy. In spite of all this, it didn't dawn on me that I had a problem. I told myself and believed the lies of every alcoholic addict that I could stop drinking whenever I wanted to. I simply didn't wanna quit. I enjoyed drinking. I liked the taste. I had become my dad. One day, one day while I was at my mom's, I called home and something in my husband's voice told me that my life was about to change. He made me wait until I got home to talk about it. He had found numerous vodka bottles hidden in different rooms throughout the house some empty and some full. He told me I needed help, and my response was to give him the lies that I believed. I told him that I was fine. I told him that I could stop any time I wanted to. I just liked the taste. His response, and I remember it like it was yesterday, to, was to tell me, we'll see. This only sent up warning flags for me to be more cautious. I needed to be more careful with my bottles, that's all. I couldn't leave empty bottles lying around. I would only keep one bottle in the house at a time. When that one was empty, I had to get rid of it immediately. I told myself I just needed to get more organized in how I managed my drinking. Kind of amusing today, but so sad for me and my family who was caught up in it. Well, my drinking got worse and my husband and mom intervened and told me that I needed treatment. I said I would go, and Ray called my doctor for a referral and had me admitted to Oak Valley Hospital. I spent three days there de detoxing. Ray had done some research. He and my mom decided that I would go to Marin Services for Women in San Rafael. It was a beautiful facility overlooking the San Francisco Bay. The only problems were that my small group leader had a psych degree and was a social drinker. She never had a problem with alcohol. My case manager had never touched alcohol or drugs in her life, but she was gonna manage my case. The even bigger problem was still me. I was there for all the wrong reasons. I was there because all of my relationships were in trouble, but not because I thought I had a drinking problem. Simply put, I wasn't ready. Marin Services for Women was like a glorified month-long camp for me. 
I did all the assignments asked of me. I was kind and respectful, and I didn't give, create, or cause any problems. When I got out, I followed their instructions, 90 meetings in 90 days. So I began going to AA meetings, where I got my first sponsor and actually began working the steps. My sponsor began telling me of some new thinking patterns that really stretched me and that I did not think much about at the time. She told me that if I didn't get that this was a spiritual program, I wasn't going to make it. Here, bearing the truth of her words, I did not connect the dots in that area, and I stayed sober for exactly 89 days. When I relapsed, Ray got really tough. He rented me a small house around the corner. He took my car and my credit cards away. He told me that if I wanted to kill myself, he wasn't going to sit around and watch. He told me that if I managed to see, stay sober and wanted to see our son, he would bring him over to my place or I could come to the house. I didn't see my son all that often. My response to raise healthy boundaries was to sit on the pity pot, isolated and alone, drinking myself into oblivion day after day. This went on for a few months until God, who was not yet a part of my life, intervened, and I finally had a moment of reality where fear seized me. In that fear, I imagined a vision where I drank myself to death and I would never see my son again. Ray was left alone, raising coal on his own. The fear and panic this produced would be my rock bottom. But even in this fear, the alcohol was still firmly in control. My first response was to see if it was as bad as my fears and imagination said it was. Just maybe it wasn't. I made an appointment with my doctor for lab work, hoping against hope that the labs would be normal and show that I was fine. When the results came back, my doctor confirmed that I had very elevated liver enzymes and my fears were realized. And in that moment, I made a choice that I wanted to live. This time, my mom helped me be admitted to Oak Valley Hospital for detoxing. During those three days at Oak Valley, Ray came in and served me with divorce papers and told me that my best friend's son had just been killed in Iraq. Shortly after he left me, my mom called and, she, and asked if I had heard about my friend's son's death. She told me how sad it was that because of my sickness and my choices, I could not be there for my best friend in her time of grief when, when she needed me the most. I was left hurting when she hung up. And if I were not where I was, I'm sure I would have downed a half gallon of vodka. I wasn't sure what I was going to do when I got out, but I had three days to figure that out. I could either go, go back to my little rental alone or check into another treatment center. I had heard of Stanislaus Recovery Center, SRC, several times and thought I'd give them a call. They told me when I got out of detox to come in for an assessment. So I did. However, they didn't have a bed available, and guess what? Yep, I started drinking again. About a week later, SRC called and said they had a bed. I called Ray, and I asked him to take me. He said he wouldn't. He was done. But he would send one of the guys from the dealership. I showed up drunk to SRC, and they sent me home. They told me I had to go have a medical clearance. Oh, great. I had to go back to my doctor's office in the morning and tell him that I had been drinking since my discharge, hospital discharge. I wasn't shaking too bad, so he cleared me. My driver took me back to SRC and into residency I went. I went to group after group and seriously began the journey of figuring, trying to figure out why I drank. 
I called Ray several times every day to come get me. I told him, I don't belong here. I am not like these people. <laughs> and every single time, he would hang up on me. I quit calling after three days. My first weekend there, Ray brought Cole to visit, mainly to see if I was still there. He figured I had, he figured since I had stopped calling, I had probably gotten somebody else to come get me. His even coming to visit totally surprised me because I really didn't think he would be coming. By this point, I began resolving that I had lost my family and Ray was done. As he and my son left, I watched them walk to the car with my husband holding my son in his arms and my son fought to get out with his little arms outstretched reaching for me. One of the counselors came up to me, put his hand on my shoulder and asked if I wanted to talk. I was crying so hard I didn't know if I could talk. I nodded my head and we went into his office. He talked to me for about 20 minutes and he told me that the past is the past. He asked me if I had a higher power. He asked me what that higher power was. I told him that it was God. He said, well, that's good. He asked if I had asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. I told him that I thought I had. I went to Catholic schools most of my life. Didn't that count? He led me in this prayer and he asked me to repeat it after him. Jesus, I am completely powerless over people, places, and things. I put my trust in you to heal me physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. I am turning my life and my will over to you to bring me back to the sanity I was born with. I went back to my room that afternoon a different person. I got on my knees and I surrendered my will and my life to Jesus. the only one who could restore me to sanity. That day I was spiritually reborn and the power to change entered my life. Psalm 116, one and two says, I love the Lord for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. God knew that I was still at risk. So the very next weekend, he had me go to Shelter Cove with Ray. Yep, he came back. And, and Pastor David Seifert asked, me to asked us to close our eyes and raise our hand if we wanted a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. My hand went up immediately. David Seifert, Pastor David led me in the sinner's prayer. At that point, I was sure that when I went back to SRC that I was a new creation. I did a lot of soul searching, which is what you do in treatment. It dawned on me that I couldn't go home and I didn't wanna go back to my rental way too many bad memories with great risks attached. I knew that if I was to have, to have any hope, I needed accountability and structure. I talked to my counselor and she gave me a list of sober living homes. I talked to my husband about my options and we decided sober living was a good choice. But which one? I knew that I wanted a faith-based sober living home. I ended up calling Life Choices and Recovery Solutions. The director, Christine, told me that she had a bed for me. She told me to call when I was ready to get out and she'd come get me so I could look at the place to see if it was something I might be interested in. When I met with Christine, she told me that there was really only four requirements, a weekly chore, a mandatory house meeting on Friday afternoons, 
attending church service at Big Valley on Saturday nights and attending Celebrate Recovery at Big Valley on Tuesday nights. Sound. That sounded easy enough to me. I moved in on a Tuesday morning and attended my first Celebrate Recovery meeting here that night. I walked in to Celebrate Recovery for the first time on April 25th, 2006. Celebrate Recovery was in the fireside room. I think there were 30 people, <laughs> maybe, maybe 50. Um, I came with a group, which helped, but it was still a big step for me. As I walked in, it I was instantly welcomed by a wonderful woman who continues to bless my life today. May be, any of us be reminded that by what follows, show how important we can be to any newcomer here. As I walked in, she embraced me. She held my hand. She looked me in the eye and she told me that I had come to the right place. She told me that she was glad that I was here. What a welcome beginning. Then worship began and I was in awe by the intensity and power I could feel in the room. These were hurting people just like me, all expressing a need for a help from a source outside of themselves, who I now know is Jesus. I was overwhelmed by the emotions stirred in me as I looked around the room and saw people who openly demonstrated their love, affection, and graceful, gratefulness to God. What an amazing ministry. After large group, I actually ended up in a step study that happened to be running concurrently at that time. I was uneasy, but it was a good beginning for me. Christine kept us coming back as a group, and it would be in that small group that I began some of my healthiest friendships today. Thank you, Lonnie and Kathy and Jennifer, if you're watching. CR's small groups are a place of true bonding. You learn to be safe to share all the garbage from your past together. You cry together, you laugh together, you have people who hold you accountable, and you love each other together regardless. It's so comforting to know that there is a place where you can be totally honest and not judged. I encourage all of you to attend OpenShare and get into a step study. You won't regret it. There is so much growth and freedom found in these grace-based, safe, and loving small groups that together work the steps. For me, it was where true healing took place. My favorite and most difficult step was the third step, which reads, we turned our wills and our lives over to the care of Jesus Christ. I had spent way too many years running life my way for this to be an easy principle to apply. But in the community of our small group with the questions of the books and accountability of my God and my sisters encouraging me, I really found true peace and serenity when I finally surrendered. Today, I still have to apply this principle in all my affairs but it remains the key to my continued journey. In my own power, I will get only human results, but surrendered to God's power, I have learned that he will work miracles. On September 6, 2006, I completed outpatient, intensive outpatient tr treatment at SRC, and my husband asked me to come back home. By the great...
By the grace of God, I stand before you tonight, and it has been 15 years, two months, and nine days since my last year. Much more miraculous, through the 12 steps and the freedom they offer, Jesus has completely removed the compulsion and even desire to drink. My recovery journey is simple. If I'm not working on my recovery, I'm working on my relapse. One of the great things about recovery are the simple but profound little sayings that have allowed, that have followed change our lives. One is keep it simple. And I work at that by attending Celebrate Recovery every Tuesday night, large group and open share. I attend Big Valley Grace on, uh, once a weekend. I'm at, uh, facilitating a step study on Saturday night, so I don't come on Saturday nights. Anyway, in addition to that, I make sure I get into God's word and pray. I am working through the steps for the sixth or seventh time and continue to take a daily inventory and almost promptly admit when I'm wrong. <laughs> I co-facilitate women's chemical dependency open share group. I co-facilitate co-facilitated several step studies. I have served on the greeting team. I've worked at the book table and I've been part of the food and dessert teams. I am now serving also in Cafe Astoria. I am humbled to have been the E encourager coach and I'm presently the A assimilator coach on the leadership team, on, on the Celebrate Recovery leadership team. I have been, um, I was honored to be invited to travel with the leadership of this amazing ministry to attend a leadership network conference in Dallas. I've had the privilege of attending several Celebrate Recovery summits at Saddleback in Southern California. I would love to thank um, the amazing team that I get to serve in this ministry with. You have truly become my family. My life is not perfect and I may not be where exactly where I wanna be, but I am certainly not where I was. Through my faith, I now know that I am exactly, through my faith, I know that I am exactly where God wants me to be right now. Standing before you, sharing this story of his grace and power in my life, the power to redeem, restore, and heal. To the newcomer, if I am speaking to you, please hear this. If you hear nothing else I've said tonight, I wanna tell you the same thing that Dee told me that first night here. You are in the right place, and I am so glad you're here. You're in the right place. You are in the right place, and you, I am so glad you're here. You are the most important person in this room tonight. I wanna tell you to keep coming back, get into service, get a sponsor, and work the steps. Jesus and the steps will change your life. Thank you for letting me share.